The sermon text for this morning is Exodus 35, verse 4, all the way through to 36, 38. It's a very long text that we will read together in its entirety in just a moment. And we will also read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Exodus 35, 4 through 36, 38. And also 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. It's important that you pay attention to the reading of God's Word, uh, brothers and sisters. The Word is read. The Word is explained. We must give attention to God's Word, for it is God's Word to us. I suppose it is especially important to urge you to focus uh, even through this very long passage that I'm about to read. Hear now the reading of God's most holy Word, Exodus 35, verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door, and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then... All the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches, and earrings, and signet rings, and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hairs or tanned ram's skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them used their skill, spun goat's hairs. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light, and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. 
All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bazalel and Ohiliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bazalel and Ohiliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was twenty-eight cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another, And the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain on the second set. He made 50 loops on one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps. So the tabernacle was a single whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made eleven curtains. The length of each curtain was thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made fifty loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the outer containing connecting curtain. And he made fifty clasps of bronze to couple the tent together, that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat goat skins. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of the frame of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, twenty frames for the south side, And he made forty bases of silver under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. 
For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made twenty frames, and their forty bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end, halfway up the frames, and he overlaid the frames with gold, and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. Let us go now to 2 Corinthians 6.14. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we will read through 7.1. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial, excuse me. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Brothers and sisters, as you know, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for all who were given to Him by the Father nearly 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to live for His bride, the church, to die for her, to rise for her, and to ascend for her. This work of redemption has been accomplished. There is nothing more to do. It is finished. And as you also know, this redemption that Jesus Christ has earned is applied to sinners in due time when the Holy Spirit of God draws the elect of God to faith and repentance through the preaching of the gospel. If you have turned from your sins and have believed in Christ and in His finished work, then you have experienced this very thing. 
At some point in time, you were called externally by the preaching of the gospel and inwardly by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. This is how the salvation that Christ earned so long ago was applied to you. You received it by faith through the preaching of the gospel and the internal working and wooing of the Holy Spirit. This is ordinarily the means that God uses to apply the redemption purchased by Christ to His elect. Indeed, this is the way that sinners come to be saved. This is how they come to be saved now that Christ has lived, died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended. And as you know, this is also how sinners were saved before Christ came into the world to do the work that the Father gave Him to do. Listen to our confession of faith on this very point. Chapter 8, which speaks of Christ the Mediator, paragraph 6 says this, Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after His incarnation, what is being said there except that the price of our redemption was not paid in human history until Christ came in His incarnation. Yet, the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated, this means given or applied, to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein He was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. Our confession is absolutely correct. People were justified or saved in Adam's day and Abraham's day and Moses' day in the very same way that they are saved today. They were justified back then just as we are justified now, that is to say, by faith. We are justified by faith as we believe in the good news that has been delivered to us, those who lived prior to the coming of Christ, were justified in the very same way, the only difference being this, they were justified by believing in the good news that was delivered to them concerning what the Messiah would do in the future. We look back upon what He has done, they looked forward uh, to what He would do, and this ability to believe was made possible by the working of the Holy Spirit. The good news that they received And the good news that we have received is the same in substance. The only difference is this. The gospel that was delivered to them came in the form of promise concerning what would be done in the future. The gospel delivered to those after Christ has come is an announcement concerning what has been done in the past. It is the same gospel, it has the same sub- substance, it looks to the same object, namely Christ Jesus the Lord, crucified and risen. But the perspective is different. Those who lived before his coming looked forward to what he would do. Promises were given to them. Also, this gospel was communicated through types and through shadows and through prophecies. Uh, We who live now after His coming look back upon what He has done. Same gospel, same substance, different perspective. And last Sunday, I attempted to show you 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not only delivered to God's people who lived before His coming by way of promises and prophecies, but also through types and shadows. And I especially focused on the shadows of Christ. That is to say, I focused on those ways in which Jesus was revealed in the laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel through Moses, especially those laws which governed their worship. The way that Old Covenant Israel was commanded to worship had a prophetic forward-looking quality to it, to them. Christ was prefigured in those laws. Christ is the substance and His shadow was cast backward in the history of redemption in the ceremonial laws that God gave to Israel through Moses. And so last Sunday we considered how the seventh day Sabbath revealed the good news of Jesus Christ in a shadowy way. It communicated to the people of God who lived in that era and indeed to the whole world that there was still hope of entering into the eternal Sabbath rest of God. Uh, We would enter in, not through our own obedience, but through the obedience of another. I attempted to convince you of this on the last Lord's Day, and I wish to do the very same thing today, but with the tabernacle. So, the seventh day Sabbath preached the gospel in a shadowy way before Christ's coming. The first day Lord's Day Sabbath still preaches the gospel now that He has come. But I hope to show you this morning that the tabernacle which was given to Old Covenant Israel also preached the gospel in a shadowy way. The tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel revealed the good news of Jesus Christ. It revealed the good news of Jesus Christ in a shadowy or symbolic way. I've already warned you that the book of Exodus is repetitive. If when I read this very long passage to you, you thought to yourselves, this sounds familiar, uh, that is because it is familiar to us. Uh, Much of what is recorded for us here in our text regarding the actual building of the tabernacle was said earlier in Exodus, but then it was delivered as instruction. It was first revealed to Moses on the mountain what Israel was to do, So all of this was said before, now we are told of what they did. This is encouraging, in fact, because uh, though Israel had fallen into idolatry not long before, here we find Israel obedient. Here we find Israel bringing in an abundance of contributions for the building up of the tabernacle. Here they do exactly what the Lord had commanded. But the repetition is important, brothers and sisters. It is not to be disregarded as if it was accidental or wasteful. I think the repetition is very intentional and significant. It it stresses the extreme importance of what is being described here, namely the obedience of Israel to build God's tabernacle according to God's command. Also, I think it provides us with a wonderful opportunity to consider this text and the texts which follow in a different way than we considered them before. Do you remember how we considered the instructions that were given to Israel through Moses before, we considered them in detail. I even had things up on the screen for you, right? Showing you what the tabernacle was to look like and all of its different features. But now we have the opportunity to consider these uh, very same truths, but in a different way. We have the ability to back up from uh, these truths and to consider the details, to, to consider the, the details of the tabernacle um, in a big picture sort of way. We will step back from the details and consider the broader significance of the tabernacle. God commanded that the tabernacle be built by Israel. And I want you just to think about that for a moment. 
and consider its significance. God commanded that a tabernacle be built by Israel. Uh, if you are familiar with the Bible, we, you, you might in fact take this point for granted. Think of it. God commanded that Israel build a tabernacle. Yahweh redeemed Israel from bondage. He led them into the wilderness. He entered into a special covenantal relationship with them and then instructed them to build a tabernacle. Why did the Lord do this? What was the significance or meaning of the tabernacle that God gave to Israel? One, the gift of the tabernacle signified to Israel and to the world that Yahweh did not redeem them to stand afar off from them, but to dwell in the midst of them. In fact, this point is reiterated time and time again throughout the Old Testament from this moment onward, that that the Lord redeemed Israel to dwell in the midst of them, to, to take up residence in the middle of them as a nation, to be with them as their God, and for them to be with Him as His people. That refrain is found throughout Uh, the Old Testament. Uh, Two, the gift of the tabernacle signified to Israel and to the world that Yahweh redeemed them so that they might might draw near to Him in worship. What is a tabernacle for? Except uh, it is the place where the people are invited to draw near to God and to enter into worship. So Israel was redeemed to worship, just as we have been redeemed to worship. Three, And here is the thing that I wish to focus on this morning. The gift of the tabernacle signified to Israel and to the world that Yahweh was doing something in them and through them to restore what was lost in the beginning when Adam fell into sin through the breaking of the covenant that God made with him. I have taught you before, brothers and sisters, that the Garden of Eden was a tabernacle or temple. And so it was. In the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. He formed the earth to make it a place suitable for man to dwell. And after this the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. The garden was not a common place. It was a holy place. It was the place on earth where God dwelt with man. And where man enjoyed communion with God. Adam was to function as God's prophet, priest, and king in that special place. He was to protect it. He was to expand it. He was to fill it with his descendants. He was to subdue the realm, the earthly realm, so that all would become temple. There he was to worship and serve the Lord perfectly and perpetually. The Garden of Eden was certainly a temple. It was not a temple made of stone. And I think this is a very important observation to make. It was not a temple made of stone or of wood or of fabrics, but it was a temple Of God's creation. It was the place where the God of heaven met with man on earth. As God says in Isaiah 66 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. This passage and others like it uh, reveal to us that heaven is the throne room of God that God Himself has made. The heavenly realm is the throne room of God, and earth itself is His footstool. And here God asks the question, what is the house that you would build for me? He does not want us to misunderstand what the tabernacle and temple were. It is not as if they contained uh, the, divinity, the, the divine one, the, the creator of heaven and earth. But, but the tabernacle and temple 
were a replica of something, namely of God's throne room in heaven and earth its footstool. We are to keep this in mind always. And back to the issue of the Garden of Eden. What would have happened if Adam had kept the covenant that God made with him in the beginning? What would have happened if he passed the time of testing? He would have been invited to eat from the tree of life. And this would have signified the fact that he would have entered into a higher form of life, life eternal. He would have entered into God's eternal Sabbath rest, the Sabbath day. The seventh day Sabbath was a sign of this from the beginning. Heaven and earth would have become one. In other words, all would have become God's eternal and glorious temple. We must remember this. If we are to understand the significance of the tabernacle and temple that Israel was told to build... Uh, then we must remember the fact that Eden itself was a temple and that God's offer to Adam in the covenant of works and to all of his posterity was that they would enter into the the eschatological, eternal temple of God, uh, namely heaven and earth becoming one and being filled with the glory of God where man would be invited to enjoy uh, their Creator forever and ever for all eternity. We must keep this in mind. You say, well, how do you know this, Pastor? Uh, where, do you, where do you come up with these things? Really, it's quite simple. We see this clearly when we pay attention to how the theme of tabernacle or temple is developed in the Holy Scriptures from Genesis 2 all the way through to the end of Revelation 22. We must pay attention to how these themes permeate the entirety of Scripture and how they are developed along the way. You see, there are certain themes that run throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. Sabbath is one such theme. We see the Sabbath day given at the beginning, and we see mention of the Sabbath throughout the pages of, the, of Holy Scripture. There is a theme that runs throughout, and there is also a very important development of the theme of Sabbath. The tree of life is also found at the beginning and end of the Bible. As you know well, the theme of the kingdom of God is pervasive. I've instructed you in this before. The theme of the kingdom of God is pervasive. I've taught you the terms offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, and consummated as it pertains to the theme of the, th- the kingdom of God. And here I want you to recognize that the theme of the tabernacle or temple of God runs throughout the scriptures as well. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. It is a terrible mistake to contemplate the tabernacle that Israel built in the days of Moses in isolation from all of the other references or allusions to God's tabernacle or temple found throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. Are you tracking with me here? You see, it is very tempting just to open up your Bible and to begin to read and to read a passage like Exodus 35 in its entirety and to become so narrowly focused on that passage and all of the details thereof that they're in that you, you lose sight of the, the bigger picture, that the story that is being told, the theme that permeates the entirety of the Bible and its development. You see, and then... And then we miss, really, the, the point of it all. We must, not, we must not do this, brothers and sisters. It is a terrible mistake to contemplate the tabernacle that Israel built in the days of Moses in isolation from all of the other references or allusions to God's tabernacle or temple 
found throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. The tabernacle must be considered up close and in detail, and the tabernacle must also be considered from a distance and in general. If we only consider it in an up close and detailed way, we run the risk of missing its actual significance. As we consider the details of Israel's tabernacle, we must look back to Eden to consider what was offered to Adam but lost. And not only that, we must also look ahead from the perspective of Israel in the days of Moses to the temple that David dreamed of and that Solomon built. We must also think of the massive and strangely placed temple that the prophet Ezekiel saw visions of in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And do not forget the way in which the Scriptures speak of Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us that the eternal Word of God took on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And do you remember how Jesus spoke concerning His impending death and resurrection? He spoke of His own body when He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, we cannot forget that the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Peter says that we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.5. And of course, we cannot forget about that wonderful, wonderful description of the new heavens and earth in Revelation 21. After describing the new heavens and earth as a new Jerusalem, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That chapter, Revelation 21, begins with these words, Then I saw new heavens and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Do you hear the declaration, brothers and sisters? This is at the very end, or near to the very end of the Bible. The declaration is made, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That is how the final state is described. It is described as a new creation temple. All is temple. The people of God are brought into this place And God dwells with them and they with Him. They behold His glory. They enjoy His presence, His presence forever and ever. We must pay attention to the theme, uh, brothers and sisters. This theme of tabernacle or temple finds its consummation in what Revelation 21, 1-4 describes. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is a description of heaven, of the final state, of the new heavens and new earth. And how is the new heavens and earth described to us in Revelation chapter 21 except as a a temple? Not a temple made of stone, but a new creation temple. All things being filled with the glory of God Almighty. He being with us and we with Him forever and ever. So the point is this. When we step back from the details of the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel, 
And as we consider the development of the tabernacle temple theme that runs from the beginning of Genesis through to the very end of Revelation, a story emerges. And what is the story? In the beginning, after God created the heavens and earth, and after He made man in His image, He planted a garden temple. It was a place where God would dwell with man and where man would enjoy the presence of God. The garden was to be expanded. The garden was to be protected. It was to be ruled by man to the glory of God. Had Adam passed the time of testing, he would have entered into the state of glory, eternal life, the eternal Sabbath rest of God, and the eschatological temple of God. Stated differently, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm would have become one. Can you imagine it? There is a heavenly realm that exists even now. It's invisible to you and I. It is the place where God manifests His glory before the angels. It certainly exists. It's as real as the realm that we live in. But it is invisible to us. There is the earthly realm that is visible to us. And if Adam would have passed the test, the barrier between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm would have dissipated. Heaven and earth would have become one. That is what the end of the book of Revelation describes to us. Heaven and earth becoming one. And so, in this way... Through his obedience, Adam and all of his posterity would have entered into the eschatological temple of God. But Adam fell. He passed from the state of life and innocence to death. He fell short of the glory of God. He did not enter into God's rest, but would now toil in his work. Nor did he enter into the temple of God, the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells, but was banished from the garden temple which he had failed to keep. Do you see the story? This is the story of creation of the first covenant that was made with man, the covenant of works and of man's fall into sin. And it's at that juncture in the narrative that that this looming question, that this question emerges, rather, was there hope? Was there any hope? And the answer is yes. For God did promise to send a Redeemer, one who would arise from the offspring of the woman. The serpent who tempted Adam and Eve would bruise his heel, but he would bruise his head. This promise that God made concerning a coming Redeemer was preserved in the world along a particular line. In due time, it was entrusted especially to a man named Abraham and to his offspring. God entered into a special covenant with Abraham wherein He promised to make a great nation of him, to give him the land of his sojournings and to bless the nations of the earth through him. And in the days of Moses, many of those promises made to Abraham began to be fulfilled. God redeemed the offspring of Abraham, that is to say the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, and afterward He entered into a special covenant with them. The old Mosaic covenant was not unrelated to the covenant that God made with Abraham. No, instead we must see it as an expansion of it. And it especially was given to govern the Hebrew people, their worship and their society, as God brought them into the land of Canaan in fulfillment of the promises previously made to Abraham. Some of the promises made to Abraham were spiritual and eternal and would find their fulfillment not in the Old Covenant, but in Christ and in the New Covenant ratified in His blood. But some of the promises were fulfilled in the days of Moses and Joshua with the Exodus and with the conquest. The Old Mosaic Covenant was added to the promises previously made in order to um, preserve those promises in the nation of Israel for a time until the promised Christ, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, was brought into the world. And as you know, the laws that were given to Israel under the Old Covenant did not only govern them, many of them served 
to prefigure Christ. In other words, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, as Colossians 2.17 says. Also, see Hebrews 10.1. The question here is, what did the tabernacle that God commanded Israel to make signify? What did it signify? What was its meaning? What was its message? And I am saying to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that the tabernacle preached the gospel. It communicated to Israel and through them to the world that God had not abandoned His temple building project. Adam failed to build God's temple, but God would see to it that it was built in another way. He would build it by His grace. He would build it through Eve's offspring. It would be built through the son of Abraham and David, the second and greater Adam, Christ the Lord. The presence of this physical tabernacle and later the more permanent temple in the midst of Israel under the Old Covenant preached that message that God had not abandoned His temple building project. Adam failed to build God's temple. He failed to expand the garden to keep it and to fill it, as he was told to do. But God, by His grace, would see to it that this temple, not the temple of cloth or stone, mind you, of the Old Covenant, but the eschatological, in time, eternal temple of God, God, by His grace, determined to see to it that this temple would be built. And I am saying that the tabernacle and the temple of Old Covenant Israel preached this good news in a prophetic and shadowy way. To use the language of Revelation 21.3, the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel proclaimed, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. The people of Israel experienced that reality, the reality of the presence of God in their midst in a typological way, in a shadowy, symbolic, sacramental way. They experienced the real presence of God in their midst, but it pointed forward to greater things yet to come. It pointed forward to the Christ who would tabernacle amongst us. It pointed forward to the Christ whose body would be destroyed, but on the third day His body, the temple, would be raised up. It pointed forward to the new heavens and earth which He would earn by His obedience as the second Adam. It pointed forward to the new heavens and new earth, you see. It was a reminder to Israel and through them to the whole world that God has been gracious, that He has promised to bring salvation to sinful men and women and to do it through the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is His name. This is the glorious reality that was promised and prefigured on earth in Old Covenant Israel. It was earned, this temple was, and inaugurated by Christ at His first coming. It will be brought to its full and consummate state when He returns. And this is what I mean when I say that the tabernacle of Israel proclaimed the gospel. Now that we have considered the basic significance of the tabernacle, I wish to speak briefly about its expansion about its expansion. Someday, Lord willing, we will come to consider in detail the temple that King Solomon, the son of David, built. Clearly, the temple he built 
was a permanent and glorious version of the tabernacle that Israel built in the days of Moses. It was much larger, it was much more grand. And I want you to note this. As the kingdom of God, which was prefigured in Israel, was established under King David and his sons, the tabernacle was established also in one place, namely Jerusalem. So then, make this connection in your minds, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God and the tabernacle of God advance in the history of redemption together. With the advancement of the kingdom, there comes advancement with the tabernacle. That's a marvelous thing to ponder, and you can do so on your own time later. The advancement of the kingdom brings along with it advancement as it pertains to the tabernacle or temple of God. And someday, Lord willing, we will consider the book of Ezekiel together. It is interesting that the book of the prophecies of Ezekiel concludes with a very grand vision of a greatly expanded temple. Some believe that this, um, that this passage uh, here in Ezekiel 40-48 through 48 will be fulfilled in a future millennial reign of Christ on earth. I believe this is a very flawed interpretation. Instead, the vision of Ezekiel 40-48 points in a prophetic and symbolic way to the time when God's temple would be greatly expanded. A careful reading of the New Testament reveals that this greatly expanded temple building project began at Christ's first coming. It, It is taking place even in these last days in which you and I live, that is to say in the days between Christ's first and second coming. The temple is not a physical building, but is more akin to the temple of Eden. There God did meet with Adam, not in a building, but in the midst of His creation. And so it is under the new covenant. Now that the kingdom of God is here in power, and now that the new creation has broken into human history, you are called a new creation according to the New Testament Scriptures, God's true and eternal temple has begun to be built. You, church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God's temple is not isolated to one nation or to one city under the New Covenant, but is expanding even now to the ends of the earth. This is why Christ said, and Jesus, this is why Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. With the inauguration of the kingdom of God at Christ's first coming, comes also the inauguration of God's eternal temple, built by God's Messiah, the son of Abraham and David, the second and greater Adam. Don't you love sermons like this? These, um, these big picture sermons. I'm trying to just give you little pieces, brothers and sisters, so that you might connect some very important dots, you see. There is a theme of tabernacle or temple that runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture, begins in Genesis 2, concludes at the end of the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth. And all along the way, there is progression, you see. A promise was given to Adam, It was entrusted to Abraham, and in the days of Moses, those promises took on earthly form. You see, the people of Israel were brought into a land where the kingdom of God was prefigured. They were given a temple, or a tabernacle first, where the temple of God, the eternal temple of God, was 
prefigured. They were given a priesthood. We're in Christ and His ministry was prefigured. On and on I could go. Everything, all, all that was promised to Adam and to Abraham beforehand took on an earthly and typological significance in the days of Moses. And these things find their fulfillment in Christ. He is the substance of these shadows. They they find their fulfillment in Christ. And when we consider Christ and when we consider His finished work, we must consider it in two stages. He inaugurated things when He first came. He will consummate them when He comes again. Can you see it? He inaugurated things. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is being built. It's being expanded as the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. And when will the kingdom of heaven be here in full, in its consummate form, when Christ returns to judge, to make all things new? The same very thing may be said about the Sabbath and also about the temple. The temple. Kingdom and temple advance together, you see. When did Christ begin to build His eschatological temple? When did He begin to do this work? At His first coming, after He rose from the grave, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the cornerstone. His apostles and prophets make up the rest of the foundation. You are living stones. You're being built one stone upon the next until Christ returns to make all things new. Do not expect a future physical cloth-made stone-constructed temple. That's one of the things you, you need to hear. I said that very poorly, but you need to hear it. It would be to go backwards, you see. In God's program of redemption. It would be to go backwards. It would be to return to the old covenant. The old covenant has passed away. The new has come and it is better. It is an advancement, you see. What do we wait? What do we await? The new heavens, the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And there is no temple of stone there in that place. All will be temple filled with the glory of God. There we will enjoy the eternal presence of God, the eternal glory of God forever and ever We need to make these connections, brothers and sisters. Um, When Ezekiel saw those visions of this greatly expanded and strangely placed temple, as described to us in chapters 40 through 48 of his his book, uh, we need to understand that uh, this temple that he spoke of found its initial fulfillment in the first coming of Christ and the building up of his spiritual temple until all things become temple at his return. That is when God's temple building project will come to its conclusion in the new heavens and new earth. When Christ returns, the heavenly realm and earthly realm will be made one, and there will be no temple in that eternal city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Revelation 21, 22. As I move this sermon now towards a conclusion, I would like to say a few words about God's tabernacle or temple in the here And now, where is God's temple now? God's eschatological new creation temple is present on earth now in an inaugurated form. And you, Christian, are that temple. You, church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body says 1 Corinthians 6:19 through 20. And in another place Paul says, "Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you?" They're speaking to the church corporate. What are the implications of this for the believer and for the church? So many things can be said. 
And I would encourage you to reflect upon the implications of the church as the temple of God, even more so uh, this afternoon and in the days to come. Here are eight very brief points. One, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple, and you have been called to worship. That is what we do at temples. God is worshipped in the temple. And if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple, and you have been called to worship. This is the reason that God has redeemed you, at least one of them, so that you might worship the Lord, so that you might worship Him individually, offering your bodies up as living sacrifices. Is that not the language of temple and of sacrifice there? And so that you might worship with the church as she gathers together corporately. Two, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple, and you have been called to pray. As we continue on in our consideration of the tabernacle that Israel built, we will see that prayers were offered up in that tabernacle as symbolized by the incense that was offered up to the Lord day and night. We have been called to pray as God's temple. Three, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple and you have been called to assemble together. Uh, Brothers and sisters, Uh, You cannot live the Christian life in isolation. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the flock of Christ. You are His bride. Uh, You are a part of the church. You are a part of the temple. You are one stone out of very many. And therefore, the new covenant people of God as as God's temple are to assemble together to offer up worship to God, to pray to Him, to sing praises to Him. For if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple, and you have been called to build His temple, you see. We are to build this temple of God. We are to expand its borders. We are uh, to even contribute so that it might be built up. I think there is a wonderful application to be made in here from that portion of the text that we read earlier, wherein the people of Israel, uh, they're obedient And they bring in contributions so that the temple might be built up. What was the tabernacle, rather, made up of except the contributions of the people of Israel? And so, too, we are to see to the building up of the temple of God in this new covenant era. We are to give as an act of worship to the Lord. We are to give of our money. We are to give of our time and of our talents to see to the the expansion and the building up of the temple of God. Five, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple, and you've been called to holiness. Indeed, that is Peter's emphasis. It is also Paul's in these passages that we have read. When he tells us that we are God's temple filled with the Holy Spirit, is he not stressing that we are to walk in a way that is holy before the Lord? In the temple of Old Covenant Israel and of the tabernacle earlier, no unclean thing was to enter into that place. And so too we are to live a holy life before the Lord. Six, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple and you've been called to expand. Here I almost repeat a point that has been made earlier, but here is the emphasis now. This temple of God is not confined to one city or to one place. It is to fill the earth. It will fill the earth when Christ returns. But what are we to do in the meantime except preach the gospel to the ends of the earth so that the temple of God does does expand to the furthest reaches of the earth. We're to be concerned with evangelism, brothers and sisters. We're to participate in God's temple-building project, not through the transformation of culture or society, but through the preaching of the Word of God. 
How is it that more and more stones are added to this temple that God is building except through the preaching of the Word of God and as the Holy Spirit works and as men and women bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord, they are taken as a stone and stacked upon the one before them, you see. And in this way, the temple of God is slowly, progressively built up and expanded until Christ returns to make all things new. Seven, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple and you've been called to communion with God. Brothers and sisters, this tabernacle and temple that Israel was given was an invitation to Israel to draw near to God and to commune with Him. In fact, I think one word that can be used to describe the purpose of, of the tabernacle or temple is presence. It was the place where God was present with His people. God was present with Adam in the garden. He was present with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple. He will be present with His people for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. But He is present with us now in His new covenant, new creation, temple. He is present with us, brothers and sisters. And so we must commune with God. We have been invited to commune with Him. Not to stand afar off, but to draw near, to draw near to God, even with boldness, because the veil on the temple has been torn in two. We have been invited to enter into the presence of God and to enjoy sweet communion with our Creator and with our Redeemer. Eight, if you are in Christ, then you are God's Spirit-filled temple, and you have been called to long for the consummation, the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells, and to persevere in Christ to the end. As we consider the church as the temple of God, the spirit-indwelt temple of God, we, we remember also that this is not the end. The temple has been inaugurated. We await the consummation. And so we are to long for the new heavens and new earth, and we are to persevere in Christ to the end. These are eight very brief and simple reflections on the church as the new covenant, new creation, temple of God. In fact, I think there is a great deal of insight to be gained concerning the nature purpose, and mission of the church when we consider that she is God's tabernacle or temple. This is language consistently used in the New Testament referring to the church of God. We are the temple of the living God. And if we consider the church as God's temple, it will help us to understand what the nature, purpose, and mission of the church is in this era in which we live. What is our mission in the world? What is our future hope? And I think that rich answers to these questions and many others emerge when we remember that the church is God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in us. Indeed, the good news is that Christ came so that we might be God's temple and so that we might enter into His eternal temple where it is said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Indeed, the tabernacle and temple of Old Covenant Israel proclaimed these truths in a shadowy way until Christ, the eternal Word of God, and the substance of these shadows tabernacled amongst us to accomplish our salvation and to usher in the new creation. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, I ask that You would help us, O Lord, to understand the great story of the gospel that is contained within the pages of Holy Scripture. Help us to grow in our understanding of these things, not so that our heads 
might be filled with information, but so that our hearts might be warmed and filled with love for you and for the Christ you have sent. God, help us to understand more and more what it is that Christ has done, what it is that he is doing, what he will do when he returns. Help us to understand how rich we are in him and how blessed we are. You have lavished us with your love and with your mercy and grace. May we see it, O Lord. And I pray that this would translate to holy living in us, that we would live a life of gratitude before you and obedience to you, O God. Increase our love, increase our hope, increase our faithfulness until Christ returns or calls us home. In his name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.